And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, which gives us glimpses of the invisible world, the reality that uh, we cannot see with our eyes, and yet by faith we can believe. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would quicken the word to our hearts and enable us to be a people of faith, rejoicing in your provisions. Uh, Father, I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully and to clearly proclaim your word in each one of us, to live it out, to rejoice in it, and to be strengthened by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at four reasons to be a praising people. We saw it takes faith to praise God when you're in difficult circumstances and some of you have uh, called me back during this past week and said, boy, it's been a challenge to praise God and the circumstances that you are in financially and, and in other ways. Well, today's sermon may take even more faith to believe that there really is a tangible power that accompanies praise. Now, last week, I hinted at that power when I said that when we praise God, it does something to the insides of us. It transforms us. It, it uh, rids us of of bitterness and anger and frustration. It elevates our faith, and it does that because it transfers our attention away from the earth and the circumstances we're facing, and it transfers it to the Lord, and that's how our faith is encouraged. And too many times we look at life through the you know rose-colored, dark glasses of our difficult circumstances rather than looking at those circumstances through the glasses of, of God's Word. But... Older writers have said that praise actually goes beyond that. 
sure, there is an inward transformation and power that is present, but praise takes us into the realm of a spiritual power that's objective to ourselves. It's outside of ourselves. And so it's not by accident that the evil spirit that was harassing Saul, remember that story, that it had to leave when David was singing those, uh, those psalms of music that he had uh, composed. And people who have dealt with the demonic have said that there are times where there, you know, some only come out by prayer and fasting, but they're struggling, where music seems to help. There are certain types of music, don't bother demons, but there's other types of music that really seem to trouble them. And so it's not by accident. There, there was a spiritual power in David's hands. It's not by accident that Jehoshaphat, when he went into battle singing those praises, saw an awesome victory. Not help that um, God had actually promised him that there would be a victory there. And we're going to be seeing how we do need to word, root our faith in the Word of God. And that'll help us from going into an extreme of some of the name it and claim it types. But at the same time, God wanted Israel, every time they went into battle, to be singing these psalms and to be making affirmations of faith and their trust in the Lord uh, to provide for them. And so before we even get into the book of Revelation, I want to talk about the relationship of confession, what it is, but the relationship of it to praise. Uh, there are times where God simply will not answer prayers until we begin to praise God in faith for the answer to our prayers before we have even received the answer. For example, you can look in the Psalms and uh, you will see this all over the place. You'll see the psalmist in trouble and he's petitioning the Lord and saying, Lord, uh, help me through this persecution or I have some need in my life. And yet the tension in the Psalm is resolved by him praising the Lord that the Lord has answered him and it's obvious he's still experiencing the, the pain and the suffering because it's still the same psalm, the same sitting that he's uh, singing that in. But he is basically confessing with his mouth and saying, I believe the Lord will do what he says he will do. Okay, that's what confession is all about. It is a verbalized confession. We believe God will do what he says he will do. And we're going to be seeing how that is true in the book of Revelation. I really could do that in the Psalms. But I thought, let's, let's trace this through the book of Revelation this morning and, uh, and teach on that. Now, before we go there, I do want to make a, a distinction. While it's true that the name it and claim it types that you're familiar with have taken this to an extreme, we've gone to an opposite extreme of not making confessions of faith. I think they have erred in a couple of uh, areas. They've erred sometimes by failing to uh, root their confessions in the Word of God and sometimes by actually asking for things that are according to their own will rather than asking according to God's will, which is revealed in the Scripture. For example, uh, there was one of these guys up in Canada that was a friend of mine, and he, was, he kept telling me, you know, you've got to just name it and claim it. And he said, all you have to do, you just be specific. He says, I'm praying for a pink Cadillac and I'm not going to settle for any other color. And I kind of shook my head and was thinking, now, where did you get that in the Scripture, you know, claiming a pink Cadillac? And uh, so we're going to be seeing how there are extremes, but we're in an extreme position ourselves. And I, I want to talk about that. It's one of the reasons I've picked uh, this topic to preach on. <clears throat> God's Word tells us that we need to continually have faith upon our lips. What does that mean? We must have faith upon our lips. 
I think it's the exact opposite of what we so frequently do when we are making negative affirmations of how miserable everything is uh, that is around us. We've just prayed that the Lord would work something out, and as soon as the prayer is finished, we act as if he's not going to answer our prayer because of all of the negative affirmations we've making. Now, you've heard of Murphy's Laws, right? And um, Murphy's Laws make people look at life negatively. They are killers of faith. In fact, uh, really, they are slanderers of providence, and so I've been repenting of this recently and, and uh, trying to get rid of some of these out of my language. But Murphy's Laws say such, thing as, such things as, nothing is as easy as it looks. Everything takes longer than you think. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Uh, man, that's as opposite to Romans 8.28 as you could possibly get. Here's another Murphy's Law. If there is a possibility of several things going wrong, the one that will cause the most damage will be the one to go wrong. Corollary, if there is a worse time for something to go wrong, it will happen then. Toast always falls, buttered side down. You've probably heard that one, right? When it rains, it pours. It, when it rains, it pours. Yeah, you've heard all of those. I, I've read over a hundred of those uh, Murphy's Laws over the, over the years. And frequently, they are self-fulfilling prophecy because they make us look at life negatively. They rob us of our faith and they rob us of our heart. And it's no wonder that the Lord does not answer our prayers because the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And those are faith killer statements. They really are. And scripture says we need to have faith upon our lips. We need to get used to making positive affirmations of faith rather than Murphy's Laws. Praise is one of the most po powerful of those positive confessions. Now, let me just take a moment to define what I mean by confession because there are different definitions that are out there. And um, some people think of confession as only telling people that they've sinned, that they've done wrong. Now, that is one kind of confession, but that's not the only kind of confession that is out there. Confession is simply verbally affirming what God affirms to be true. Okay, it's verbally affirming what God affirms to be true. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith is affirming the doctrines that we believe God has stated in the scriptures. This is our confession of what we believe God is affirming to be true. A confession of sin is affirming that God is right about how bad our sins really are. Even if everybody else says, oh, it's not that bad, we insist on confessing the way God confesses our sins to be. Now, just as a by the way, uh, apologies are a counterfeit of true confessions of our sin. Uh, they don't go nearly far enough. Uh, they are more preoccupied with trying to patch up a relationship but minimizing the sin. And most Apologies don't even remotely describe the heinousness of our sin that God sees them to be. And so what I would encourage you to do is don't say, I apologize. If you've sinned, say, please forgive me for, and then list the sin just the way God sees it. And when they minimize it, say, no, the Lord's opened my eyes to see that this sin is far, far worse than I've ever imagined it to be. Read the prayers of the Puritans sometime and you will see how they saw the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Actually, um, you know, I think David's a great role model on this. When he has sinned against you or his kids have sinned against you, listen to how they apologize. He's read deeply of Matthew Henry's book 
Uh, Matthew, Matthew Henry's uh, book on prayer, what's the name of it? I highly recommend people buy that. But here's the point. Matthew Henry's book is not just a book that teaches us how to confess sin properly. It's an incredible book, a faith-building book that shows us how to make positive affirmations and declarations uh, of, of faith. Um, it's um, got things about declaring God's victory in history, God's triumph over humanism, God's promises concerning our children, God's promises of forgiveness in our lives. Man, it's an incredible book. In fact, um, Kurt needs to take notes on this because I want to buy some copies for all my kids. And um, uh, this book has done incredible things for me in terms of building my faith and recognizing we need to pray the scriptures and we need to declare the scriptures uh, continually to, to others. And so a confession of sin affirms the true state of affairs relating to sin. A confession of doctrine affirms the true state of affairs relating to doctrine. A confession of God's promises affirms we believe what God has promised even when everything around us shouts the exact opposite and it seems crazy to believe these promises. It doesn't seem to warrant it, okay? Uh, we're living by faith. All of those confessions take faith. It takes faith to affirm the doctrines in the Shorter Catechism because you couldn't come up with those on your own. They're revealed doctrine. You can only find them in the Bible. It takes faith uh, to affirm that sin no longer has dominion over me when you're struggling like crazy against sin. It takes faith to make those kinds of statements. Say, I'm not giving up because sin shall not have dominion over me. It takes faith to say, I'm going to lick the sin. I'm going to have the victory over the sin because God's word says so. And uh, all, all of those affirmations uh, really are affirmations of faith. Uh, to be a true confessor is to refuse to ever say, I can't do it. I can't, I can't, when God says you can. It refuses to say, everything's always going wrong, when Romans 8.28 says the exact opposite, that all things are working together for your good. It refuses to expect the terrible twos in our children or the terrible threes or to expect, you know, it's just going to be natural. We've got to expect our kids are going to be rebellious teenagers when they become teenagers. You know, the thing I have found is that parents who have um, expectations that that's a natural phase that they have to go through uh, to be rebellious have rebellious teenagers. I refuse to believe that because of the power of God's covenant to transform our families. <clears throat> And so uh, I'm going to try to make this as, as practical as I can in our lives. Occasionally, I've had to ask forgiveness for uttering Murphyisms. And one of the Murphyisms that I have frequently caught myself saying and having to repent of is when it rains, it pours, which when you think about it is really a slander of God's providence. And I want us to think a little bit more deeply of what we have on our lips. Do we have faith on our lips or is it something else we have on our lips? Here's the bottom line. If you've got a scripture to hang on to, Confess it. Don't just say it in your head. Confess it with your mouth. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says, Because God himself has said, dot, 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 so we may boldly say. Now, he puts a specific promise in there of what God has said. But you can put any promise into there. Because God has said, we may boldly say. Now, here's what he put into that verse. Because he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
Okay, because God has said, so we may boldly say. That's a confession that's disciplining my mouth to stop whining, to stop slandering God's providence, to stop being negative and to begin to affirm, yes, I can do this because God has called me to do it and by His grace and by His power, I will do it. We're disciplining our mouth to line up with the Bible. And you might think, well, you know, do we really have to affirm these things outwardly? Can't I just believe it in my head? And I would say... There are hundreds of examples in the Scripture that command us to say things out loud, these positive affirmations. I think it makes a huge difference whether you just believe it in your head or whether you say it out loud. In fact, at the beginning of our Christian life, every one of you has made a confession, a very positive, verbal confession of faith when you became a Christian. Here's what Hebrews 10.10 says. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth... Confession is made unto salvation. God wants our confessions to be out loud, to be with our mouth. Because God has said, so we may boldly say. So we're verbally agreeing with God's word, and that ushered us into salvation, but it ushers us into all kinds of things through the rest of our lives. And that's why Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, let us hold fast our confession. Oswald Chambers said, it will never be mine until I say so. If I say what I believe and confess it with my mouth, I am lifted into the domain of that thing. Now, with that as a background, let's dig into this issue of praise as one type of positive confession. Just as David engaged in spiritual warfare when he went, uh, you know, into Saul's chamber and he was uh, playing on the instrument, in the book of Solomon, uh, in the book of Revelation, Revelation ties songs of praise together with the warfare of the church. Now, we're, we're not going to have time to go through the whole book, but it seems that almost every advance of the church in this book of Revelation is preceded by either the prayers of the saints or by the praises of the saints. Songs of Revelation seem to precede the new advancements of Christ's judgment. And so I think this is a, a great topic to be talking about on, on uh, this Easter service. Now, two Easter's ago, I told this story, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, the story goes that on Easter morning, 1799, the Austrian citizens of, the, uh, of Feldkirk were woken up in the uh, early morning hours with sounds outside their walls, and when they went to investigate, they saw that Napoleon's army had surrounded them. They knew there was no way that they were going to be able to overcome Napoleon's army, and so they were debating amongst themselves. They called a, a council meeting together and they said, should we just go ahead right off the bat and hoist the white flag of, of surrender? Uh, or what do we do? And the dean of the church uh, stood up and uh, he said this in a trembling voice, this is Easter day. This is the day of our king's resurrection. We must have one moment of triumph. Let us at least ring the bells. If the town falls, it falls, but we must ring all the bells of Easter. And after some discussion, they all agreed, and they said, okay, well, it didn't hurt to, to ring those bells. And so all of the bells throughout the town in the different churches were wildly clanging. And when the people who were camped outside the walls heard this celebration, they assumed what are these guys celebrating for? They assumed that the Austrian army had come to relieve them. And so they immediately picked up camp and were in full retreat before the bells had even stopped ringing. Okay? 
And so, uh, you know, the music of that day had an impact upon their lives. Well, in a much more profound way, the church of John's day, like that little town, was under siege from a far greater adversary, the devil. Now, outwardly, it didn't look like the devil. Outwardly, it's like these bureaucrats. Here's an Israeli official over here that's giving us trouble. There's a Roman official and official from Pergamos that's giving us trouble. But what John does is he helps them to look behind the scenes and saying, hey, we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. Well, sure, it's flesh and blood that's beating you and throwing you into prison, but it's really Satan behind that. And so there's spiritual weapons that we need to be working with. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9, talks about the church of Smyrna going through tribulation. He says, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Church of Pergamos had martyrs. And in the rest of the book of Revelation, things are getting worse and worse in the next few years. And yet throughout the book, strangely enough, there is a confidence, there is a joy, there is a sense of victory that the church constantly has juxtaposed side by side with apparent defeat. And it's just a remarkable, strange oddity in this book. And almost everybody's noticed it. You've got these expressions of victory while they apparently are having total defeat. What's going on here? I want to look at that. The awesome affirmations of faith that we read from chapter 5 earlier ushered in wave after wave of spiritual warriors in chapter 6. And even though the saints faced tribulation in the same period, they recognized God's hand advancing his kingdom. And here's what they cry out. Amen. That means so be it. Okay? We agree, Lord. Let it happen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. They do not allow the tribulation to make them give up and to be discouraged. Look at chapter 11 with me, if you would. Uh, chapter 11 of Revelation, it looks like everybody has ganged up against these two witnesses. And they're the only two faithful ones left in Jerusalem, and even they are killed. But look at verse 7. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. And so it's a sad day for the church. So many things are going wrong that anyone could be tempted to spout Murphyisms, right? Murphy seems to be right, at least to those who lack faith. In verse 10, the evil people are rejoicing. Verse 14, things are said to be going from bad to worse. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And yet despite that, you do not find the angels in this chapter spouting Murphy's laws. You do not find the church in heaven or the church on earth spouting Murphy's laws or being tempted to give up. In fact, you see the exact opposite. You see some of the most ludicrous statements, that is, if you do not have the eyes of faith. I mean, from a human perspective, what they are saying does not make sense. Look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now think about that confession of faith that they are making there. To many people, that may have seemed like an insane thing to be saying. What do you mean the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ? I mean, we're just entering into the incredible persecution under Nero. The whole world is ganging up against us. What are you saying that we can be giving these statements of victory? 
It seems insane. It's like, it's like Murphy's laws are the ones that are in operation right now. And so it doesn't line up with reality unless you have the eyes of faith. But that's what makes these things confessions of faith, right? We are, Murphy's laws are walking by sight. Saints are supposed to walk by faith, right? It's not going to look like that. Anytime we're called to have faith, it's going to look like the opposite when you're walking out there or else it's walking by sight and not by faith, right? And yet he chooses to work, God chooses to work through the weakness of our mouths, of the faith of our lips. Those confessions become part of the process of seeing Israel judged, seeing Rome judged, and converted, and the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Look at verses 16 through 18. Church leaders respond with similar confessions of faith. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. Therefore, oh, excuse me, the nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be vindicated and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, forget about the eschatology of this for a moment, okay? It really doesn't matter whether this is at the end of history, a thousand years before the end of history or some other time. It is still true that what the saints put upon their lips has a connection to what happens in history. Okay, what they are declaring happens in history. Look at the results in verse 19. Then, and you see this all throughout the book of Revelation, they, they testify, then something happens. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. I mean, isn't this exactly what we long for? To see heaven open, to see God's power being manifested upon the earth. Well, what the book of Revelation indicates to us is that just as God ordained victory to happen in Israeli armies of the Old Testament through the confessions of faith of his people, so too through the praise, through the confessions that we give today, we are going to advance. We've got to cast off negative talk and begin making our lips faith-building vessels like Jehoshaphat of old. The people of this chapter are facing overwhelming odds, okay? The odds are stacked against them, yet they're confident. Unseen principalities and powers are seeking to destroy the city of God by every means possible. They are surrounded on every side by the brazen and defiant assaults of Satan against God's truth. And you know what? There are countries today that seem as just as hopeless a case as the town of Feldkirk seemed back then and as the people in the book of Revelation seemed back then. And yet God has done incredible things through the faith that God's people have had. I think of uh, the country of Sudan. Now, it does scare me a little bit that uh, the United Nations now is moving in there uh, to do peacekeeping because, um, you know, supposedly they have this, this uh, peace treaty signed and uh, the North has been forced into that, but the United Nations has always cited with either the Muslims or communists, depending on where you're at. And to me, that's not a, a good sign. I just assume they stay out. But in any case, just think of Sudan and what has happened over the past uh, many years. 
over and over again in Sudan, you found uh, these people uh, giving their expressions that if God is for us, who can be against us? And uh, Peter Hammond, um, he taught them how to pray the warfare, fair, fair prayers, and how to make these confessions of God's victory. And here are these people, they don't have decent weapons at all. The only weapons they were able to get were weapons that they captured. But here are these chaplains of these southern armies, you know, leading these people in these rousing, militant uh, hymns and declaring their faith in God and willing to lay down their lives for God. And God brought miracle after miracle, just one of the stories that happened. There was an enormous movement of northern armies. It looked like the southern army was going to be totally wiped out. And they were singing God's praises. And all of a sudden, the northern army just took off. They just started running as fast as they could. They left their vehicles. They left all of their, their armaments and everything behind. And so the southerners are chasing after them. They captured a few Muslims. By the way, they took real good care of the Muslim captives that they took, unlike the reverse. But anyway, they asked one of these guys, how come you guys were running? He said, man, we were scared to death. There's all of these fiery beings that were chasing after us. It was angels, okay, that were taking after them. And so that's where they got their first boatload of uh, weapons. All of them were captured from the north. But there was a country that was willing to take God at his word. And my point is, we need to be making the same kinds of positive confessions today. It's not like what the name it and claim it. We're saying, no, we are affirming what God says to be true. This is not wishful thinking. This is thinking God's thoughts after him. And I think it's really important that we do that. Now... These declarations didn't just precede judgments, they also precede evangelism. Chapter 14 talks about the sound of harps. And verse 3 says, They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now, what's the result of this singing? We see it in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. In the book of Revelation, God's people sing. They sing in the face of persecution. They sing in the face of adversity. They sing in the face of miserable circumstances, but they have a confidence that God is working out his purposes in and through their weakness. Uh, they have the realization that Jesus has risen. He is powerfully at work in the church. And uh, the songs of heaven are powerful precisely because they are sung from the presence of the Lord. Uh, we may lack the faith to ring the bells of Easter joy because we don't experience, we don't see his powerful presence. Uh, you know, it's sort of like the darkness uh, at Feldkirk, you know, right before dawn is sometimes the darkest times of the night. And uh, we don't see anything around us. It seems the exact opposite, but that's one of the reasons God calls us to worship week by week as we are caught up into the heavenlies, as we experience fellowship with Jesus, those experiences of his presence in our lives can enable us to sing by faith those, uh, those songs, those warfare songs. When Jesus was caught up into heaven out of sight of the gazing apostles, I am convinced that was a transition mark where it transformed the way they looked at life. It completely transformed them. The Pentecost was another one where Christ said, I will come to you. He came through the spirit uh, of Christ into their lives, but they were turned from fearful disciples into bold apostles because they were convinced of the reality of an invisible power. Now, in chapter 4 of Revelation, uh, we 
are invited to get a glimpse of that invisible realm. We can't see it, but by faith we can believe it because Revelation talks about it. We're given a glimpse. And in effect, what he is saying there is he's saying, man, this is the kind of power that Jesus has, the one who was promised to be with you until the end of the age. Let me read that for you. After these things I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And as John describes this awesome splendor of God the Father and God the Son, he's transformed. All of a sudden, Rome doesn't look like such a formidable adversary after all because he sees how big God is. Yes, Nero is a, a giant beast, a ravenous beast, but compared to God, he's no match for God. No way, he's no match for the, the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has done in that chapter is he has been captivated by the awesome realization that God is ruling and there is nothing anyone else can do about it. He's overwhelmed by what he sees and God's holiness, his power, his eternity. And as the angels cry out, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, not half mighty, almighty, right? Who is, oh, excuse me, who was and is and is to come. He has no doubt about the fact that Jesus Christ is king. He is in control. It goes on to say the 24 elders fall be down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Now that is a confession of faith. That is a confession of faith. What he is saying is those enemies cannot breathe a breath. They cannot utter a word against Christ without Christ giving them permission to be able to do so. I mean, think about it. If Jesus right now upholds all things by the word of his power, that means every molecule of your enemies, every molecule of Christ's enemies is being upheld by the word of his power and he could take them out just like that. And the fact that he hasn't taken them out means that God has a purpose in our lives for them resisting us. And yet, God is going to triumph nonetheless. He is in control. He is on the throne. <clears throat> we act many times like that's not the case, as if God is not in control, as if Murphy's laws are in control. But praise casts aside those doubts, at least the biblical praise. In fact, I just love the songs of Revelation because it's a manly singing for the stout-hearted, okay? It's the roar of Wallace's army. I mean, you look at those songs, they're awesome. They're anything but passivity. And music is connected heart and soul with the advancement of God's kingdom. And you need to begin to value music. You need to begin to value the songs of Scripture. The bottom line is what we sing reflects what we believe. If all that we sing are the sentimental songs of the mystics, well, then don't be surprised that the church does not have any impact upon society. If we refuse to sing the kind of judgment songs that we just finished reading, or like the one in chapter 16, which we're not going to read, the call down God's destruction upon his enemies, then don't complain if the enemies continue to have the ascendancy, because that's exactly what you're asking. Lord, I don't want you to judge them. I want them to have the ascendancy. What we sing really reflects what we believe. 
<clears throat> many churches refuse to sing the imprecatory psalms of the Old Testament. They say it's just not worthy of New Testament times. Well, let me tell you something. Read Revelation. You'll see far tougher language than you'll find in any of the Old Testament psalms. Anytime. There's no question about it. And so in chapter 6, the believers at the altar call for judgment on the enemies. In chapter 16, the angels rejoice in God's judgments. And then the believers agree and they say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. They don't balk at Christ unleashing his sword. These are true confessions. They line up what we are saying with the reality of what God affirms. And it's in singing such language that we begin to gain the mind of Christ and see that his judgments are indeed just and good and true. The songs of the church today have changed the church from being the church militant to being the church complacent. You know, all through church history, the church down here below has been called the church militant. This has historically been true. The church in heaven has been called the church triumphant. It's always been militant. It's either the church militant or the church triumphant. There's no place for a church complacent, and yet that's exactly what the church has become. But if you have been mastered by the visions of revelation, you cannot be complacent. You cannot be. The poet Carlyle wrote, Let me make a nation's songs, and I care not who makes their laws. What he was saying is that the songs we sing have a powerful way of framing our minds, framing the way we think and the way we act in our worldview. That's one of the reasons, by the way, young people, why I tell you it does make a difference what you listen to in music. It makes a huge difference. When you listen to wimped-out music, and most of the music on the radio is wimped-out music if it's Christian, and when you listen to secular music, it's going to frame the way you think. It affects your worldview, whether you think it does or not. What we th sing does impact our worldview. I want you to turn with me to one more song. We're not going to go through all of them, but we'll just do one more. Revelation chapter 15, and I'm going to begin at verse 2. As God's people are caught up to the throne of God in worship, they join with a chorus in heaven. Chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having harps of God and they sing the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the Lamb saying great and marvelous are your works Lord God Almighty just and true are your ways O King of the nations who shall not fear you O Lord and glorify your name for you alone are holy for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Now, on what basis could they make the confident proclamation when it seems like there is, this is the time of the great apostasy, right? Whether you think it's past or you think it's future. This is the time of the great apostasy. On what basis could they say that uh, uh, we, we can guarantee that the nations are going to be converted? It sure wasn't by looking around them and seeing it seemed like the world was falling apart. They could make those confident confessions of faith because they were spouting the promises of a God who cannot lie. They had faith upon their lips. They had the scriptures upon their lips and it gave them faith. We have to have faith to take them in the first place. But as we begin to enunciate these things, it elevates our faith. It strengthens our faith to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for him. Notice in verse 5 what happens as a result of such a song of faith. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. There it is, opened again. 
And that's what we long for is to see heaven open, to see God acting powerfully in history. Well, when will the church begin to sing the songs of heaven? That's the question. When will we begin to put away Murphy's laws and begin to have faith upon our lips? He saw heaven opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues. And he goes on to speak of the judgments that came on Rome and on Israel that resulted in the greatest missionary movement of the past 2,000 years resulted not only in the conversion of Rome, but of many other nations. The first nation to be converted was Armenia. Incredible story. But there were other nations that became Christians through and through culturally in every way. Far more Christian than America was. There is hope. It's happened in the past. It can happen again. It's a matter of focus. If our focus is simply upon this earth and all of the earth's problems, then yes, we're going to start to complain. We're going to give up. We're going to feel frustrated. We're going to grow disheartened. We're going to want to put up that white flag of defeat. But when we worship at the throne of God, we see the awesome power of the risen Christ walking in the midst of the candlesticks, walking in the church. Whoa. You begin to realize it doesn't matter how powerful the government is. It doesn't matter how powerful the foes out are out there. Our Christ can handle them all. We can ring the Easter bells of joy. We can say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, Easter is not just a theoretical message about something that may or may not have happened 2,000 years ago. It is history. And what happened 2,000 years ago continues to impact us today. And the reason is that Jesus is alive and he is reigning and he is here in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? He is, he is reigning. Now, let me end by having you turn to your handouts. You should have a handout in your, in your um, worship notes. If you don't, there are probably extras on the back. And this is your homework. I want us to not walk away from here and forget this message. I want us to begin practicing this. And so I've given some samples of how to begin to have positive confessions of faith when your heart is dragging you down. And this is just a start. There is, I mean, there is thousands more that you could put on there. But I wanted to at least begin to help you to see how you could put this message into practice and start killing the Murphyisms that are trying to kill your faith. Memorize those verses. If you find uh, your besetting sin is, is in one area, memorize a verse that counteracts that and say, no, I will not believe that because I'm going to hold fast the confession of faith. Now, when you think, oh, it's impossible, I can't do what God wants me to do, then affirm with your mouth, Lord, I praise you that the things which are impossible with men are possible with you. And tell yourself, self, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I am going to do it, okay? Uh, refuse to give in. That's a faith-building confession. When you're tempted to say, oh, I'm too tired. I can't. I, I'm too tired. Affirm with your mouth, Lord, I stand on your promise that he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. And I am strong in the Lord who strengthens me. Lord, I believe that your strength is sufficient for me. When you're tempted to pout and think, oh, nobody loves me. Well, confess with your mouth, self. I don't believe that. You are loved with an everlasting love and underneath are the everlasting arms. And go through the rest of that list. Now, you might be, again, embarrassed to say these things out loud. But again, let me tell you, it's not enough to just believe it up there. There is something about verbally, outwardly expressing this that elevates faith. I think this is what God has affirmed over and over again. In fact, by the way, silently praying was unheard of in the ancient world. 
I, know, I only know of one example, and I only know of one example of silently reading, and that was Jerome. And what did he live in, the fourth century or something like that? And everybody was mystified. What is he doing? What is he doing? How is he reading without making his lips move? Because they just weren't used to doing that. They were always affirming things with their lips. And I think God intends us to do that. Uh, David uh, frequently did this. He would talk to himself. Uh, for example, in Psalm 42, he says to himself, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Basically, what he's doing is he's grabbing himself by the scruff of the neck and he's saying, Self, shut up. I don't want to hear that. You're not going to say that. I don't want those negative affirmations. You're going to believe in God. You're going to take his promises seriously. And we need to do the same in our lives. And so my admonition to you is to hold fast the confession of faith, or as Hebrews 13 words it, because God has said, so we may boldly say. There is a power in confession. There is an even greater power in praise. So believe it and say it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, forgive me personally for the times that I have made uh, negative affirmations that kill my faith. My wife and my family know that there are so many times where I kill the faith of all those around me with some of the things that I say. Help me, Father, to be a person who elevates the faith of all those whom I come into contact with and who elevates my own faith by making these confessions, holding fast the confession of faith. And Father, help each one in this congregation, from the youngest to the oldest, to be a people of faith. Father, make us to have such faith that we will expect great things. And so your provision. And thank you, Father, for trusting us enough to have, have put, that you have put difficulties into our lives as integrity checks as to whether we're going to be followers of Murphy or followers of you. Help us, Father, each one to repent of those times where we have followed after a strange God, Murphy, and we have followed, failed to follow after you. Pick us up when we stumble. Help us to get right back up again, to confess our lack of faith and to follow after you with a whole heart. Make us warriors in your kingdom. Help us to have the, the roar of, of uh, Wallace and his army. And Father, help us to make a difference in our culture. And we'll be sure to give you all of the praise and the honor and the glory because you deserve it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's end the service by singing together Crown Him with Many Crowns. Well, it's not Crown Him. I think it's another one. But let's stand and sing it. It's a great one. I knew what it was and I've forgotten, but it's great. Let's sing it.
And one thing that I failed 